Let's spend basically the rest of the course looking at this whole area that we would describe as special hermeneutics. Let's talk about narrative literature. What's narrative literature all about? And I've already given you a little bit of a hint here in that it is very, very important in Scripture for a lot of reasons. First of all, the reason we start here is the narrative of Scripture lays a foundation for all of Scripture and therefore is the foundation for all other genres. It is the most common of all literary form of all of Scripture. That by itself is a good reason to start with it is because most of Scripture will be narrative. Most of what you'll encounter will be narrative. If you want some numbers, over 40% of the Old Testament, probably closer to 45% of the Old Testament is narrative. Almost half. And about 45% of the New Testament is narrative. So the four Gospels and the book of Acts make up about 45% of the New Testament. So overall, over 40% of all of the Bible is narrative. So that's why we begin with narrative. Besides it being most common, and also because I think it's foundational to the rest of Scripture, you can view, and I'll talk some more about this later, you can also view the whole Bible as a narrative. In other words, a large narrative or a meta-narrative. You can view the whole Scripture as a meta-narrative, with all of the books contributing to a broad and larger story. Make sense? So there's a larger, overarching story that includes all of Scripture, and then you have all other literary form that contribute to that broader overall narrative. There is a plan. There is a direction. There is a story that binds all other smaller elements of Scripture together. So I'd like to kind of review that. We touched on this when we were talking about the historical principle, so I'd like to remind you of some of those things and maybe even uh, mention some others as well. So that's why I began with it first. Brief review of what narrative literature is all about. The essence of it, the essence of narrative, In a simple statement, narrative is the presentation of history or events in story form. And one of the goals or purposes of narrative is to give, and this is in general, this is even a novel, is to give the reader the sense of being there. That's one of the main features of narrative material. And if... This is what narrative is attempting to accomplish in you, then it's best when you read narrative material, think in terms of being a fly on the wall. In other words, put yourself in the story, maybe just as an observer, watching the event. So visualize that story going by you in your mind, thinking through The setting that the author lays out, the setting is there so that you have a visual picture of what's going on in the story. 
It's not just added material to fill up a book. It's there in order to give you kind of some mental pictures where this story is taking place. The circumstances, the situation, the location, those sort of things, so that you can imagine them in your mind. So put your imagination to work, put yourself into the story, and in fact, to the extent that you can, try to experience the same things that the characters in the story are experiencing. That's what narrative is attempting to to accomplish in the reader. That's probably one of the main purposes of narrative literature, is to give you a sense of an experience that the that the writer is attempting to communicate through the characters, through the story, through the events that take place. And this is true of, of the Bible as well. So narrative in Scripture, we ought to read the Scriptures such that we think in terms of trying to put ourselves into the story itself and experience the things that the characters experience. Secondly, when we speak of narrative, we want to make sure that we're talking about historical narrative when it comes to Scripture. When we're dealing with biblical narrative, you always have to remember that it's historical narrative. Now, you might have a presentation of another story, also obviously in story form, that's non-historical. For example, novels would be classified as narrative material because it tells a story. But it may not be true. It may be just a novel. It's just something that is of interest to those that enjoy novels and interested in the particular novel. But when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the presentation of history or events in story form. So that's historical narrative. Things that actually took place in time and space when we're talking about biblical narrative. Narrative literature in general. In other words, the whole world uses narrative. Narrative is just a story. Telling a story, that's narrative. But a story can be a story that is fictional, doesn't have to be real. In fact, most novels are fictional. Novels fall under the category of narrative because it tells a story. When we speak of the Bible, we're not talking about a narrative that is fictional. We're not talking about a narrative that is like a novel. We're talking about a narrative that is real. We call that historical. So all narrative in the Bible that is, strictly speaking, narrative is historical narrative. Not mythological. That's the new hermeneutic and other liberal defective hermeneutics. So I can't overemphasize the fact that we believe in a historical Bible, and we believe in historical narrative. So even though we may describe it as narrative, when we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about historical narrative. Let me talk about historical narrative in relationship to what we would describe as science. When we speak of science, generally, we're speaking of observational science. Now, there's such a thing as a historical science that attempts to reconstruct the past using scientific principles, 
But in general, when we speak of science, we're talking about observations that are made in the present. That's observational science. Observations made in the present. Now, that's different from history. History deals with events that are non-repeatable, things that took place in the past. Well, how do you evaluate or how do you decide what took place in the past? How do you reconstruct past events? All you have available today are the traces of the past. And they can come in a variety of forms. The traces of the past can be eyewitness documents that people wrote down. If you can recover newspaper articles of the past, those would be traces of the past. If you're dealing with the ancient past, and you're dealing with things, dealing with origins and that sort of thing, you have the geological layers. Those are traces of the past. Those traces don't have little tags on them with dates on them or information that you can say, well, this happened to create these geological layers. So you have that whole spectrum. Obviously, the most reliable traces of the past are what? Written records of eyewitness accounts. Those are your most reliable. And even they you have to weigh. Even they you have to see whether or not this is a reliable eyewitness. Okay? So those are traces in the past. So the data of history that you have to work with includes these traces that are left behind by an event. And like I said, the best traces are those eyewitness accounts which leaves those geological records that you're talking about and paleontology as very subjective, right? Because they don't have, have tags on them. So the data that you have available to reconstruct the past are these traces left by the events, and this is important. A historical fact, and I'm talking about in general, I'm talking about world history, I'm talking about U.S. history or whatever, and would include biblical history. A historical fact is what? No, it would include the traces left behind by an event, but what else? Very, very important. Data plus interpretation of the data. So when you read a history of Abraham Lincoln, you're taking a look, okay? This author, he's using eyewitness accounts, or maybe he's using newspaper accounts, or maybe the writings of others that are closer to that event. What is he using to give me this history of Abraham Lincoln? And does he have a bias? Does he have an inclination? Is he credible? Is he honest? Because what he's giving me is he's putting these pieces of data together, but he's putting it into a form after interpreting the data. This is characteristic of all history, and the weakness of all of history is not so much in the data, it's in the interpretation of the data. So the reliability of the storyteller, whether he's a historian, is crucial in believing 
and trusting in what's presented in any history. So when we come to Scripture, this is why inspiration is so important, is because we have someone that is superintending the outcome, and we can trust the interpretation of the writers of Scripture. This is why we use Scripture as the foundation for everything else. Make sense? And why the history that we have that's recorded in Scripture we believe is real history. And in fact, we should evaluate world history or any other history based on history that we have in in Scripture. So, narrative is not only the most common genre of all the Scripture, but we emphasize the historical aspect of that and how important that is. Another characteristic of narrative, it's always selective, and that's true of biblical history as well always selective. And we particularly wish that there was more detail in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of questions that we just can't come up with answers because there's just limited data. But also because of inspiration, we trust that what was selected is what God intended for us to understand. So all of narrative is selected. The writer of fiction, like a novel writer, he just selects the material that is going to tell the story that he wants to tell. Any history, whether it be of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or Napoleon, or whoever, they are selective. They don't give us everything. But it is also included with their interpretation. There are books that are written about the Civil War from either the perspective of the North or the perspective of the South, and they're different. And you have to sort out and decide which one is probably the more objective and more accurate. That's true of all history. But it's selective. And I said it's interpretive, as I showed in that last slide there. Keep that in mind. And we have confidence that when we come to Scripture, the interpretation is God's view because of inspiration and inerrancy. And he is the one that is giving us the perspective on those events. He is the one that is interpreting those events and presenting them to us in Scripture. And what is given to us is God's view which I want to expand a little bit and go back to a couple of things that we talked about way early in the course when I gave you an introduction to the historical principles. So let's review some of that. I gave you Acts chapter 17, which gives us a complete philosophy of history. In these few verses, and particularly 26 and 27, We have the essence of what real history is all about. In fact, every course that you would take either in high school or at UNM or anywhere should begin with this perspective because this is ultimate history. This is true. This is real history. And I would propose to you that what we have in Scripture is the foundation for all real history. 
and all other history ought to be put in that framework of biblical history. And in the course that I'll teach next semester, I'm going to develop this in greater detail. I'm going to give you basically this framework of real and true history, which is the foundation to all of history. And we'll do a lot of other things as well. So all history, whether it be Egyptian, whether it be European, you name it, Russian, it all should fit within the framework of biblical history. Because of what Paul says under inspiration in Acts, and you can start in verse 24, where Paul actually begins with God as creator, so it starts with creation as a real historical event. He goes all the way to the beginning. That's the first event. Before that, all there was was God. In the beginning, God. And he somewhat reiterates it in verse 26. And he made, specifically human beings, he made from one man every nation of mankind. So if you want to know about nations, civilizations, empires, countries, they all have their source in one man. And that goes all the way back to another major event of world history, the Genesis Flood. All men come through Noah, and then ultimately the first man, Adam, and obviously Eve as well. I think he's speaking generically here. In other words, from one, every nation of mankind comes. So it's giving us kind of the foundation of where all of the nations that you can observe today, where did they come from? That's where they came from. And they are to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, and the having is God, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries. In other words, the chronological sequence of all events in world history is predetermined, having determined their appointed times and boundaries. It deals with geography. The boundaries of their habitation is under the sovereign control of God. Look that up in your UNM textbook and see if you can find uh, this foundation of world history. And it has a purpose, verse 27, that they, in other words, the inhabitants or the people that uh, come, all of mankind, would seek God. So all of world history is designed as a revelation and an opportunity that men may have opportunity to come to know the Creator the God that set all of this in motion, the God that is sovereign over all of these events that have been taking place for thousands of years, that they would seek God. So going back to Romans 1, all men in this process have received revelation from God such that they all know the God that created all things. There's no such thing in reality As an atheist, an atheist is simply someone that has so deceived himself into believing that there is no God, that he's convinced himself of that, and he sets himself up as an atheist. But the whole purpose of world history is that men would seek God, if perhaps. Now, the New American Standard, there's not a perhaps there, it's if and it's a conditional clause. And you Greek students, how many... Conditional clauses are there, at least. At least four. What would you suppose the if perhaps here is indicating in terms of a conditional clause? The first one 
assumes the premise to be true, and you could even trans, or the first class condition. You could even translate it if it were a first class here, since, since this is true, then something else. But it's not since, so it's not a first class, so that leaves you three guesses. What would you suppose? You're close. It's fourth class. And a fourth class condition is, it, the premise is so unlikely that it's almost not going to happen. So you could almost paraphrase this, if perhaps out of a chance of one in a million, something along those lines. Or if, but it's not likely at all. If, and it's not likely at all, they might grope for him and find him. And what does scriptures tell us? There's none that seeks after God. All have the opportunity, all have the revelation, but because of depravity, man does not seek after God. So no one, because God has set things up, no one is going to be able to stand before him and say, well, I didn't have an opportunity to trust in you. I came from the darkest places. can't say Africa anymore. I have to say darkest places of the United States anymore. So that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In other words, he's the creator and he's right here. He's omnipresent. That is a complete philosophy of history. That sets all of the parameters for world history. Let's summarize what that verse says. First of all, God is the creator and therefore is the author of all things. That's not only verse 24, but verse 26 reiterates it. Verse 26 tells us that God has a sovereign plan that all the events of world history fit into. There's a sovereign plan superintending all events. Thirdly, we have this linear concept. In other words, history has a direction and a purpose. Look for that in your college world history text. What's the purpose of world history? Most college texts, you know, just events randomly happening. Uh, dependent on certain personalities that happen to rise up. There's a Hitler, so there's a Holocaust. There's a... Uh, there's uh, an America, well, there was a Columbus, you know, th those sort of things. In other words, certain personalities just arise, and as a result of the things that they've done, certain outcomes result. Well, the Bible speaks of a beginning, and it also uh, speaks of a direction, and it speaks of an end. Everything is going in a certain direction. That's the linear concept of history. The Eastern concept is circular. In other words, events kind of recycle. That's part of the purpose of reincarnation, is so that you can recycle your life such that maybe the second time you do better than you did the first time. That's not the biblical concept. The biblical concept is linear, not cyclic or circular. What I'm going to give you in this one slide is the kind of that outline, if you will, or that summary of all of the Bible. This is that meta-narrative. This is his story. And I think it can be told very simply, and on one little chart is all of the Bible. So this is the context of all of Scripture on one slide. 
And you can summarize his story as God revealing his glory to his creatures, which include both angelic and human. So just the creation itself is a revelation to the angelic creatures. This is a summary of all that we have in Scripture. God revealing himself to mankind. So a revelation of his glory. That's a summary of everything that's going on in the Bible. Now, most theologians summarize, you probably heard the word, the history of redemption. Have you heard that phrase, that that summarizes all of the Bible? I think it's bigger than that. I think this is a bigger statement and it captures more than that. More than just the history of redemption. Because the history of redemption essentially begins in Genesis 3. And I think you want to include Genesis 1 and 2, which includes, I think, a revelation of God's glory. There are a couple of major parts to that. You could see a major part, God revealing his glory through this nation. So all of the events that precede Israel are just the setting for the nation of Israel. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis, just the setting for the nation of Israel God intervenes and out of the nations draws one man, Abraham, and through that one man, God enters into contract or covenant with that will produce a multitude of descendants in a particular geographical location, the land of Israel, and God intends to bless all of humanity through that nation. Now, that nation in time has in some cases been a blessing, and in times it has not. It has failed. That nation has at least been a lasting blessing in that it's from Israel or from the Jewish people that we have all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. So they've fulfilled that aspect. Secondly, it's through Israel that what we have, not only Scripture, but what? What's the other, even more important than Scripture? Messiah. Messiah comes through Israel. And it's only as a result of Messiah that we have another aspect, another group that God is using. It's the church. An entire era called the church age So far, 2,000 years. And both of these are heading in a direction. Where do both of these combine? And where does world history end? Can you answer that? Kingdom. Very good. So we have Israel in the land, in mortal bodies... And we have the church in the kingdom, also in the land, but in spiritual bodies. And it's in the kingdom that history finds its consummation. It's in the kingdom that all of the covenants that God made to Israel will be fulfilled, including the Abrahamic covenant. That's where world history is headed. That's the context of the Bible. Got it? So I disagree with that whole theological perspective called covenant theology that says Israel and the church are equal. I think they are two entities that come together in the kingdom, but they remain distinct throughout history and even in the kingdom. 
but they do come together. And then ultimately, this is the end of world history, then you go into the eternal state. So on one slide there, you have a, a summary of all the scripture, and that's the context of all the Bible, and that is the narrative. That is the story. And it's a story about God revealing himself. Got that? And you could look at how all of these events are beginning to progress. I'm going to go into great detail on each of these events in that next course, Foundation of All Things. And real quickly, we have, obviously, it starts with creation. That's what Paul said, not only in Acts 17, 24, and verse 26. These major events, and by the way, when you speak of narrative... There are different levels. I've given you the meta-narrative level. In other words, this is the big picture. Within that, there are separate individual and sometimes focused around an event, a narrative that deals with a particular of the broader and bigger narrative. Make sense? So when we speak of the Bible... We have a series of major events or clusters of events that make up the individual parts of this bigger narrative that begins in eternity past and ends in eternity future. That's what we mean by linear. You can put it on a timeline and it has a beginning and it has an end. Look for this chart in your UNM World History course. And what happens to that original creation? In other words, we are not living in the same creation that God first made at the very beginning. What's the next major event? You have to include the fall, exactly. And there it is on the chart. Where all of this creation was transformed in a negative way, and we have the fall. We are living in a fallen creation. And we are fallen creatures in that fallen creation. The rest of world history is a story of God dealing with the fall of man and ultimately reversing the elements of the fall. Some of that reversal will be accomplished in that final phase of history we call the kingdom. Make sense? See where it's all headed? And because of the fall, there has to be a judgment, and we have events leading to a first major judgment, even though the, at the fall itself, man is judged, the earth is cursed. So we have a, a major event, the flood, which adds to this narrative. It serves as an example that uh, God deals with sin in a very definite way, and it has painful consequences. And as a result of the flood, we have a new generation, and now we have a scattering. God intended the inhabitants to spread throughout the whole world. They failed, so God intervenes with another judgment and scatters and also confuses the languages to facilitate the scattering. And I'm not going to give you all of these events, but uh, and give you some of the highlights of world history here. We have Abraham. This is part of this meta-narrative. This is part of his story, these major events. God calling one man out of all of the nations that have been scattered. God calls him to himself, enters into covenant with him, and sets the rest of world history in motion, such that the Abrahamic covenant sets the parameters for all of the rest of world history. 
And we have, because of sin, we're going to see a recurring theme. Sin is going to de- degrade this these people. They're not a nation yet, but the descendants of Abraham, such that they en- have to go into a slavery or bondage condition. And the focal point of the Old Testament is God redeeming that people that he promised. And if you read Exodus, it's all according to the Abrahamic covenant. There are references back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and what God promised them. We have the Exodus. I'll develop all of this in detail, like I said, next semester. So if you want to get all the detail, you have to sign up. (laughs) Exodus. And from the Exodus, you could consider this the birth of the nation. God works a work. There's some major events in between here, I won't outline them, but eventually God is bringing a nation into a kingdom where he is king. That sets a foundation for what God intends to do in world history, ultimately. And we have the foundation for God's kingdom that will not even be realized until after the rapture of the church. But we have all of the elements of a kingdom right there, about thousand B.C., beginning with David. That kingdom degenerates. Sin has its effects. There's a partial return in preparation for the major event of all of world history is the incarnation of Messiah. And there's other events that we can include, and I, I will include. But with the incarnation, Jesus sets up another entity. We describe that as the church where God is giving a sample of the new covenant that he made with Israel. We are the beneficiaries of experiencing that, even though we're not even part parties to the covenant. I'll explain some of that. And that is going to be a period of time until he returns, and he's going to take the church out, and upon his return, he will establish a thousand-year kingdom, or we describe that as a millennium, which is the last era of world history. Can you see how history is moving in this direction? And in the millennium, part of the curse is reversed. Not all of it. There's still sin at the end. (laughs) I can see. Mind turning. (laughs) Yeah. What happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? There's still a final revolt until the great white throne where all of sin is separated out, where sin is judged. And it's at that point that we have the eternal state where we live in eternity with God. That's the end of world history. Revelation chapter 20. That's the history. The meta-narrative is all of this combined, which God revealing himself to mankind. We have individual narratives... This is kind of a a second level of narratives. Each one of these is a story in itself. And sometimes the events leading up to the story is part of the story. So each of these are different narratives within the broader narrative. And then even within it, you'll have individual narratives, smaller narratives, stories of individuals. For example, we have the story of Joseph, which in itself is a narrative within the broader narrative. And even within the story of Joseph, there's aspects of that story. 
Or if you go to the New Testament, you have the story of Jesus Christ himself. We call that what? Four Gospels. And individual within it are specific events that take place in the life of Christ which form smaller, even smaller narratives, individual narratives. But we don't know what happened in eternity before or eternity. That's right. Well, you get a glimpse of eternity future from Revelation 21 and 22. And you get a glimpse of what it was like before from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. In other words, God was there. And you get little glimpses of it from passages that describe angelic beings created somewhere in all of that. The point I'm making here is this, this is narrative material, and the Bible itself can be viewed as a big narrative with lower level narratives and even smaller level narratives within them. That's why I say that the narrative literature is kind of the foundation of all scripture. I gave you Acts chapter 17. Every nation of mankind, he made every nation. So it includes creation of all things. Uh, having determined, that's that sovereign plan, determined their appointed times and boundaries. So it includes geography and, and time. That, certain outcomes, in other words, the purpose. So our philosophy of history includes God as creator and therefore as author. Secondly, God's sovereign plan. We have the linear concept. It involves time and geography. That's the essence of history. Time, geography, events. And we have divine purpose. Is that a complete philosophy of history? This should be the introduction to your world history textbook. Right there. Chapter 1. Well, it's real. Yeah. God answers a lot of questions. So that's the description of narrative. And I think you probably have a good handle on where do you find narrative or the occurrence of narrative. In the early books, in the Pentateuch, Genesis would be considered narrative. And it's important to specify Genesis 1 through 11 just as much narrative, just as much historical narrative as chapters 12 through 50. Because the liberals look at chapters 1 through 11 as mythological rather than historical. And some of them would even look at the patriarchal portion of Genesis as mythical as well. So all of Genesis is historical narrative. There's not a difference from chapters 1 and 11 to chapters 12 through 50. There's, there's not a change in genre. It's the same genre. All of the book of Exodus. You consider Exodus itself a narrative within this broader narrative. It gives us another portion of this history. And Numbers gives us portions of that narrative as well within somewhat the same time frame as the Exodus. And then after the Pentateuch, we would consider Joshua, Judges, and this little story of Ruth. That's a little narrative. Little snapshot. Ruth and Judges are complementary. Judges is a dark history of the nation of Israel in its early beginnings. A lot of negatives in there. A lot of raising up of peoples around the children of Israel and oppressing them. 
a need to raise up a judge to release them, and it goes over and over like in cycles. And then if you want a little snapshot, a little picture of what it's like in a godly family, then we have a little snapshot, a little narrative called Ruth that tells a little story of what the nation of Israel was supposed to be like. In other words, people were to come to Israel, become believers like Ruth, who was not Jewish, who was a Moabitess that comes and receives Israel's God. Your God shall be my God. Remember that? So it gives you a little glimpse of what God intended for the nation overall in the midst of this dark period of time in Israel. And then we have the movement in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles of that kingdom era. In Samuel, we have the beginnings of that kingdom. In Kings, we have, in general, the degeneration of that kingdom. And then Chronicles looks at it from the priestly perspective. Each of these are narratives, separate narratives. And then after a period of exile, we have more narratives for a return to the land. The land is crucial. We have Ezra, we have Nehemiah, and then we have a little snapshot of another family, much like Ruth, in the middle of this same time frame, Book of Esther. Those are your narrative books. So that's where you will find entire books that are narrative in the Old Testament. And then you have the four Gospels in the New Testament, which are narrative. And what's left? Book of Acts. Book of Acts. Those are your books that are predominantly historical narrative. You do find some narrative portions in some other books as well. In other words, narratives within these larger books in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, even in Ezekiel, there's little small narratives within those books. No, it fits under a... Yeah, I guess you could say that it's kind of a hybrid. It combines some other... Uh, when we get to epistolary, I'll talk about Revelation. Revelation combines somewhat epistolary material because of some elements in there. But it would fit under what we would call prophetic, a different genre. But it, it is a story, so in a sense it has some characteristics of narrative. But strictly speaking, it would fit more broadly in prophetic. But these are your strictly narrative books, and then just small sections of other books would be narrative as well. There's different kinds kinds of narrative. First of all, there's these, what we might call the simplest way, form of narrative would be reports. These would be brief, self-contained, small events or a series of small associated events. And you think of many of them. For example, in the Gospels, you have the event where Jesus cleansed the temple. So all of that would be considered just kind of a report within the broader narrative. little report, or takes the form of a report. Just a single event, single major event, or situation would be a report. Kind of the other end of the spectrum, you could 
some narrative is epic, and you, we have some longer narratives with a series of reports or a series of events, series of episodes. You could consider the wilderness wandering where you have some description in the book of Numbers, you have some in the book of Exodus. That's more like an epic. Or you might even consider the whole story, the the Israeli epic, the whole story of the nation of Israel. That would be like an epic, epic story. Or the, the whole book of Acts would be considered more of an epic because it has all these series of events of the early church. So that's a kind of narrative. You might describe some narrative as heroic narrative where the heroic aspect is the emphasis. You have a series of events in the life of a outstanding individual or even a hero, you might call him. The whole story of Joseph is a heroic narrative. So Genesis 37 through the end of the book, which speaks of Joseph, that's a heroic narrative. The life of Moses contained in the entire Pentateuch, well, starting with Exodus, last four books, that would be a heroic narrative with Moses as the main hero or character that accomplishes mighty works. So that's heroic narrative. In the book of Judges, the story that is associated with the individual judges, that could be a heroic narrative. You have prophetic stories that are similar to this heroic narrative. These would be accounts of the life of a prophet. A prophetic story like the story of Elijah or the story of Elisha would be considered a prophetic story. These are just different kinds or different emphases. You even have what people in literature call comedy. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily funny. What they mean by comedy is a story that has a good ending as opposed to what's the alternative to comedy? Tragedy. In literature, these are kind of the two opposite ends. You have comedy or you have tragedy. Comedy is when you have a, a happy or a good or a very positive ending. Tragedy is when you have the opposite, when the ending is disastrous. An example of comedy would be, the, again, the story of Joseph. Not only is a, it's a heroic narrative, but it's also, you know, a good ending. The, the nation of Israel is preserved as a result of the story of Joseph. Is that the picture you would see in the entertainment world? Two faces? Yeah, right. Comedy, tragedy. And these are just terms that people that, do literature and particularly narrative. These are their categories or their names. But we find these in in Scripture. The story of Esther, that has a comedic ending, obviously. Children of Israel on the verge of annihilation, and we have a woman, in this case, Esther, who finds favor with the king, marries the king, and is able to reverse the course of events there. That's comedy. And there's lots of tragedy in Scripture. You might... Adam and Eve ends in tragedy. Story of Adam and Eve. Or at least the major event in their life. The fall of mankind. That's tragic. 
plunges all of the rest of world history into a fallen condition. King Saul, that would be a tragic story. Israel's very first king ends in a man's demon-possessed, even, it seems, or even demon influence at least, who loses the kingship and puts Israel in a tragic situation. So that's tragedy. Solomon, his life ended badly. That's a tragic story. Starts off at the, the peak of Israel's history, but ends with the kingdom divided, or the next generation. But it's his sin that leads to the division of the nation. So this is a kind of narrative we describe as tragedy. There's romance. You find all of these in just everyday literature. Can you think of a couple of books that would fall under this descriptive work? Song of Solomon would be a romance. And as I've already mentioned, I take Song of Solomon literally as a, as a real story of King Solomon marrying perhaps his first wife or perhaps at least one of them. And it's a, it's a romance. Ruth, again, we spoke of Ruth, that's a romantic story that involves a marriage as well, and it's it's narrative. And again, let me remind you, all of these, these can be characteristics of, of novels, maybe not a prophet story, but a novel could have a, a hero involved in it, and even a, a longer series, you might even describe uh, a series of novels as epic and obviously, any novel can have a good ending, or it can have a tragic ending. So these are just kinds of narrative that you find in Scripture, and you would expect in Scripture, if it's the finest literature, you'll find examples of all of these. And I'm giving you some of the examples. A polemic, a story that is intended to give you arguments against something, or refuting a viewpoint. It's a polemic. The story of Elijah and the 450 prophets would fit into the the polemic. It would also have a good ending, but it it is a polemic against Baal and Baal worshippers. The ten plagues in the book of Exodus, they're highly polemic against the gods of the Egyptians. Make sense? And in Scripture, we have kind of a unique kind that you don't find in other secular literature that we might call gospel. And there's a debate among scholars as to how to classify gospel. The debate is not over whether it's narrative or not. The debate is 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 whether this is a unique literary form. Now, certainly this gospel or the four gospels would fit under the heroic narrative. But the four Gospels are somewhat unique in the whole world of literature. And it may be some even considered a literary form of its own, a subset of narrative. Still narrative, but it has some unique features that you don't find in any other literature. Those are your major kinds of literature. So when you're reading, see what the author is doing. And like you would read any story if you can recognize that the story that he's telling is comedic, then look for a good ending, and, and here's the outcome. 
And what are the things that led up to that positive outcome? And because it's scripture, God has designed these in order for us to find good endings in our experience as well. We can learn things. Just to, don't want to do those things. Don't want to do the things that Saul did, because that ends in tragedy. I want to do the things that uh, Joseph in the Old Testament did because God used him as the savior of his own people. Kinds. So it seems kind of something I've got. Wouldn't figure out on my own. Like a romance, a tragedy, a comedy are not considered genres. No, they're yeah, a kind of narrative in itself. Yeah, these are all narrative, but these are kind or the the way this narrative is structured, such that shows certain elements. The major elements to all narrative, including scripture, is you have a setting. So take a look at that setting of that story that you are reading. The setting of the meta-narrative is verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which implies there was nothing before that. No time. That's the ultimate setting. But in general, when you're looking at a setting, the author will give you the circumstances of that story. It'll give you a little geography, maybe. It'll give you a time frame. It'll give you things associated with the events that are going to take place there. It might even give you some things leading up to the story. So it's the temporal, it's the cultural, it's the the physical setting of that story. And as you develop that and understand that, Now that author in that setting is going to put characters. So that's the second element of a story. Major characters. Who's the character of a meta-narrative? God himself. It's his story. What's the main character of the creation story? God. Very good, I'm glad. (laughs) thought you might say Adam. (laughs) Adam and Eve. Yeah, God, because God is the one that's doing everything in the seven-day creation, but a secondary character would be Adam and Eve, because everything is built in order for the first two human beings. So, major character. Major character of the four Gospels, obviously Jesus Christ. There are two major characters of the book of Acts. Two major characters. Can you name them? Peter and Paul. Right. And not Mary. (laughs) So it's very important that you can identify when you're exegeting narrative, ask yourself the question, who are the major characters? Who are the secondary characters? And then all these other characters are just kind of uh, background or setting characters. So all of the events are going to concern whoever these major characters are. They may be one or two or maybe a few. And if Once you have these characters in a setting, now you have these characters acting out certain things. We call that what to the story? That's the plot of the story. What is the story itself? Or what are these events? What are these sequence of events? And those events are all related in that one particular story. And that plot 
can end in tragedy. That plot can end in comedic ending. That major character may be a heroic character, or that character may be a character that uh, ends in tragedy. So those are your major elements to a story. So make sure in reading narrative, you pay attention to the setting because it's kind of sets the framework and gives your mind the details for imagination. And pay very much attention to the major characters. But you want to pay attention to the minor characters because they will have an impact on the major character. And then look closely at that sequence of events. In other words, what is the story itself? What's going on here? And then you'll get the essence of what the author's trying to communicate. The heart at what he's trying to communicate. And remember, what he's doing is he's interpreting these events. He may not blatantly tell you in the story what he's trying to accomplish, but if you can figure out this plot, you can begin to put it together, and from that, you can begin to apply it in our time frame. And the most common application from narrative material are examples to emulate and examples to avoid, one or the other. Those are your main applications out of narrative material. Yeah, you can find, you look for a purpose within the plot, yeah. But the author may not lay that, in other words, it's not a major element because the author may not give it to you, you have to discern it from the plot. John gives us the purpose of his narrative at the end, but it's only John, Matthew, Luke, and Mark don't. But if you can analyze the plot, you can oftentimes, the next step is to understand why the author gave me this this story. Now, there's more that we need to talk about that we'll uh, save for next week.